Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. In 2008, 4% of U.S. bachelor's degrees were awarded in engineering compared to China, where 31% of bachelor degrees were awarded in engineering. High school students in 29 industrialized nations performed better than American students in math in 2012. Students in 22 nations performed better than American students in science in 2012. By most statistical measures, Americans are falling behind in science, technology, engineering, and math, or the STEM subjects. Considering many of the careers of tomorrow, and probably even today, especially the ones that pay good wages, could be in the STEM fields, this has to be a reason for concern. So what has to happen to to turn this trend around? Joining us today to talk about it is Matthew Randazzo, CEO of the National Math and Science Initiative. Mr. Randazzo, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Also joining us is Dr. Eric Darr, president of Harrisburg University of Science and Technology. Dr. Darr, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Scott, for having me. If you have a question or a comment, maybe some suggestions on why we don't do as well in the STEM subjects, what, what we can do about it, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, I'm going to start with that basic question and get into the improvements that we can make and what we have to do. Those statistics that I just read, that's just a, a sampling uh, and I have to say, Matthew, that on your website, that uh, there were two pages of them that I was like, oh, my God, afterwards, not real optimistic. Uh, and that should be a reason for, for concern. How do we get to this point? Well, I think the principal challenge is that we have a 21st century knowledge economy that's driven by STEM subjects in STEM fields. And and you juxtapose that reality with the state of American public high schools today, and, and we're simply not doing a good enough job preparing students for that knowledge economy. Uh, a quick additional statistic that, that ought to make you um, uh, angry, perhaps, is that over half of all math and science teachers in the United States today are either teaching out of subject or they're uncredentialed. So when we recognize this knowledge economy, when we recognize that we have to prepare students for success in STEM fields, and yet those teachers that are supporting today's students don't have adequate training and support to really inspire kids to great achievement in STEM, um, it's a challenge and it's something that we desperately need to focus on. And I think that's one of the answers to your question, Scott, is you know what are the causes? And, And one of the causes is lack of preparation, lack of training for teachers. And and it goes to, you know, not only prob- problems and difficulties in public K through 12, but also in higher education, uh, in the education colleges and universities that train the teachers that go out into K-12 is that they're teaching the way they did 50, 70 years ago for classrooms that looked like classrooms looked 50 years ago. And classrooms and the need in those classrooms, as we all know, just commonsensical, are very different. And yet the curriculum in ed schools has not, by and large, kept pace with those needs. Why? Why not? I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of complex reasons, but what are some of the major reasons? I mean, it almost seems counterintuitive when uh, so many students today are judged on standardized tests. But one of the, the main topics one of the main subjects that they have to be proficient in is math, okay? That's 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 one thing. And, you know, these, let's face it, these young people today, boy, but I sound like my grandfather, I just said, <laughs> these young people today, they use technology more than they ever have. So 
those couple of things right there sound counter, kind of counterintuitive. Well, it, the young people today, young pe- again, there I, there I sound like my grandfather, grandfather as well, but, right? um, uh, are, are more comfortable, more uh, experimental, uh, more willing to just jump in. Uh, and you think about the average 40, 50, 60-year-old professor that's teaching in an ed school, they're not. They're not as willing to, to uh, accept technology. They're not willing to make the effort to learn a new skill, a new uh, way of teaching, a new way of thinking um, for a variety of reasons. And some are, certainly some are, but by and large, there's no incentives. There's no reasons. There's no motivation for them to pick up these new skills that are required in the classrooms. You know, heck, you know, we, Harrisburg University helped create a introductory uh, kind of four-hour uh, course for teachers across Pennsylvania, K through 12 teachers in Pennsylvania, about how to integrate technology into their classrooms and create what's called blended approach to learning. Um, and and this was the first course of its type, and this was just two years ago as an introduction to the tens of thousands of teachers in Pennsylvania just to be aware of what was possible, let alone be proficient and expert in it. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Matthew. Yeah, yeah I, I think the the other piece is, to, to, to your point about testing, there, there is potentially a bit of a disincentive for teachers to go out and try to innovate, and that is this real reality around accountability and standards. Um, that that said, you know, getting back to that that earlier point, if more than half of your teachers are not credentialed or don't have a degree in the content area, how are we setting them up for success? And so, one of the reasons I'm I'm just thrilled with the work that Harrisburg is doing is is I've I, I think of them as a bit of a disruptor as you think about the traditional higher education model, and and one of uh, NIMSI's signature programs is is called NIMSI, which is your organization, National Math and Science right, Initiative. It right. gets it gets tiring saying that over and over <laughs> again. Um, it is our U Teach program, and and that U Teach program, we have a few investments across the state of Pennsylvania, and and it's really simple. It's let's recruit STEM undergraduate majors into STEM American classrooms. Let's let's turn the curve with regard to the percentage of uncredentialed, unqualified. Uh, folks teaching STEM at the high school level. Mm-hmm. Now, we're going to talk about all those things, too, but, you know, I don't want to lay this all on teachers, and I don't think you are, but teachers only follow the curriculum that they have to in a high school, a middle school. So why aren't school districts, why isn't the Department of Education in Pennsylvania and other states, why aren't they looking at it and say, you know, here are the careers that we are that we have to prepare our students for today and tomorrow? So we have to change what we did 40 and 50 years ago. Why isn't that happening? You, you know, I think um, it, it is happening in some cases where you actually see alignment within K-12 higher education and business and industry. And you start to see some norming around what expectations are. How are universities preparing to send uh, their graduates into the workforce ready to work on the first day? Um, how are K-12 systems sending their students into higher ed ready to perform 
at a college and university level that first semester. Um, that said, I think you know you've got a, a pretty significant bureaucracy in K-12. You, you add that to the various bureaucracies that exist within higher education, and um, and and frankly, there are a lot of entrenched interests that 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 either slow the work down or we get into a debate over a specific standard on 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 third grade math and we lose the focus that we know we've got to sit that set that kiddo up for success in third grade if they're ever going to successfully matriculate to Harrisburg and be a STEM leader. Well, and, and I would say, you know, look the the national debate or the national cry in some sense around accountability. Um, in the K through 12 space, and more and more the account accountability in higher education. Accountability is a good thing, but accountability, I would I would suggest, does not necessarily equate to standardized testing. So, there we standardized go. testing yeah. is one way to get to uh, accountability, but um, it is in lots of ways shown to be not the best way at all. And and uh, standardized testing, in many ways, at least the way that it's now uh, implemented. Um, demotivates students in K through 12. Demotivates teachers in K through 12 to be creative, to to embrace learning for learning's sake, and go heaven forbid anything outside of the PA Common Core because that's what we test on, that's what we award money on, and that's what gets published in papers, and that's what anybody ever talks about. So, you know, uh, the the only way to get to accountability is through standardized testing. No, I think there we have to be more more creative and more thoughtful about about how to achieve accountability, but not with just the single tool, the single hammer called standardized testing. All right, but something you just said, and I'm going to take your call, Bill, and Bill is waiting patiently, and I think he's patient, on hold in, in just a moment here. But, uh, you know, you, you, something just described, Eric, uh, using creative thinking, being creative, thinking, you know, to use a cliche, thinking outside the box and not just focused in on those topics that uh, are tested on the standardized test. Um, let me go back to the, the, the person who does, the student who does well in the STEM subjects. How do they think? What, what kind of levels of creativity do they have? What kind is required? Well, I wouldn't. I, I, my observation is they don't have necessarily any more creativity than Why not? than anybody else. Uh, you know, kids that are that are interested in STEM today, unfortunately, I think they come to it on their own, which is, you know, one of the things that we're trying to change. And I know, you know, Matthew is through his work as well, is to expose kids when they're very young to the possibilities of STEM careers. Look, nobody. Very few people, anyway, grow up next to a nanobiotechnologist. I mean, heck, you can't even spell that, right? So, we all—I don't know what that does. You know, you all grow up <laughs> next to you know lawyers and doctors, and okay, well, we know what we we know what those are, right? But, but you know, what does it mean to work in a lab in a pharmaceutical? What does it mean to design new materials? You know, you everybody uses a, 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 a you know a mobile phone, but nobody really thinks about how did it get there and the materials that are in it and the design of it and the, the even the touch screen, the technology behind it. I mean, those are all when you start explaining that to a young kid and saying, you know, you could work in fields that design the things that are on this phone or or maybe you don't like the way that the phone feels because it's square and you want a round phone well get into technology and maybe you can you know design a new way that phones look and feel you know then that starts their imagination and their creativity going they go okay i understand now why i have to sit in this really boring class called algebra because it's going to get me somewhere and allow me to do something really great and creative in my life 
But without that kind of connection of, you know, point A to B to C, kids get thrown into a math class when they're young and they don't do real well and they don't understand why they have to work so hard and they kind of give up and then they're off the path. And once they're off the path, then it's really hard to get them back on. Matthew, is algebra boring for you? N- not at all. One, one point, though, Eric, <laughs> Eric, uh, Eric picked up on something really critical, and that is this concept of what I like to call the spark and pull of STEM education. Early and earlier, we have to engage students as early as elementary school around the splendors of STEM. And, and a lot of times what that happens is through hands-on, project-based learning, out-of-school time activities, summer camps, etc. Give them opportunities to tinker, to build, to get excited about the potential. But then you have to have the pull. You have to have the academic supports. You have to have the teacher preparation. And, and, and you have to be able to carry those kids through highly rigorous coursework in middle school and high school to set them up for success as a STEM major in university. Well, unfortunately, you you just hit on a particular problem. You said many of these things happen out of school, and I agree with you. And why do they happen out of school? Why can't they be integral to the curriculum? Because the PA Common Core, the Common Core across the United States, doesn't allow for these kinds of activities inside the school day or in the hours of the day. And so they happen as after school or summer or other things that maybe even cost additional funds and then you know there's whole families and whole neighborhoods that can't afford these things and and you know but the, you're absolutely right they often happen as out out of school things not part of the everyday life let me uh, go to bill here bill i i was counting on you being patient are you are you patient today oh scott you know i'm old and crotchety and passionate but i'm also pretty patient <laughs> all right so what's on your mind well, a couple of things. I agree with the young gentlemen and what they're saying by and large, but I think they've missed a big issue that caused this whole thing. When I graduated from high school in the 1962, um, we had a lot of what they are calling STEM stuff given to us and before. And when you graduated from high school, you were capable of going out and getting a job, or if you were academically inclined as I was to become an engineer, you would go to a technical school, a college, something else. Today, and actually it came about, I think, during the 70s and 80s, in what I like to call the don't cry pumpkin era. Don't cry pumpkin, you'll get something just for participating. You don't have to win, you don't have to try that hard. And therefore, we lowered the standards to graduate from high school to a point where it became untenable. And now we have to send everybody to college at a much higher cost because they're not being trained the way they should in, in high school. And what these gentlemen are trying to do is push that back. But there's a hell of a resistance with the don't cry pumpkin syndrome. And I think it's endemic almost in a lot of the upper educational community and in our lawmakers who don't know their bottom from a hole in the ground. I'm glad you cleaned that up a little bit, yeah. Hey, you were an engineer? I am. I don't think I'm retired. No, yes, I don't think I was you ever an told me that. And a project manager where I built large, complex factories, offices, laboratories around the world. Mm. Hey, well, thank you very much for your call, Bill. Uh, he called us young guys, so uh, I feel good about that anyway. But the point he's making, and you know, we've all heard it before, that there has been a change. But actually, I have to admit that one of the things I was thinking about when uh, the two of you were describing 
K through 12 education today is that schools just can't count on those students who are outstanding students. They have a wide variety of students with diverse backgrounds that they have to provide educations for. Does that make it more difficult to get the STEM, the, the students involved in STEM in the first place, and then to go on to STEM careers? So undoubtedly, the, the, the challenge that every classroom teacher in America faces is the ability to differentiate his or her instruction to meet the needs of anywhere between 20 and 30 kiddos in that classroom. And, and we, th that is a Herculean effort for a veteran teacher. And as we see new teachers entering into K-12 and, and, and petering out at a, at a pretty dramatic rate after three to five years of, of teaching, you're just creating this cycle where you have new teachers trying to differentiate and meet the needs of students. So, so no question. Um, but you can't even get to that, um, that sophisticated level of differentiation um, when you don't have teachers who have the, the, the basic content knowledge in some cases or the instructional strategy to really introduce appropriate levels of rigor to meet students where they are. So, so there's no doubt that, that that's part of what's driving this challenge. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're discussing the STEM subjects, what we have to do imp to improve. And I say we, meaning Americans, our guest today, Matthew Rendazzo, CEO at the National Math and Science Initiative. And by the way, he will be the commencement speaker. One of the reasons he's on our program today, the commencement speaker this weekend at uh, Harrisburg University of Science and Technology, and Dr. Eric Dar, who is president of the university. We welcome your questions and comments. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.com. Org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. And I do want to get into uh, your program in, in just a moment. A couple other things. As I was researching for this show, I, I read a number of different articles, and they were talking about STEM careers. Um, there was one article that said the myth of uh, STEM careers that uh, we don't have enough workers. But then when I read the article, I saw that they were talking about one area in particular, that there are too many PhDs looking to teach on the college and university level in the STEM subjects. But then they listed the number of careers where there is a shortage of skilled workers, educated workers, and there were many more there. First of all, do you agree with that premise? And secondly, what are some of the careers where there is a shortage? I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I agree that there are, are too many PhDs that are looking to to teach. I, you know, and I know I know this because of trying to hire PhDs in in uh, computer science or data analytics or biotechnology, which are the subjects at Harrisburg University, um, and we can't hire PhDs fast enough. So, um, it, it, you know, and we search on a global basis, not just uh, in the United States. So, you know, maybe in certain areas there may be. But across the board, you know, as an example, in, in Pennsylvania right now, there are more than a quarter million open jobs um, that are in STEM fields. Um, like what? And by and large, uh, Pennsylvania is a very big pharmaceutical uh, um, hub. Um, so many of the jobs are chemists or biotechnology professionals that uh, would work in pharmaceuticals. And the other large area is obviously computer science. And, and you know, if you think about healthcare companies or healthcare insurance companies, banks, 
by and large, what we see as consumers are the front ends of those businesses, but the entire back ends of those are just large technology businesses, whether those are call centers or data centers or you know, keeping track of all our personal data and making sure that hopefully that it's safe and secure and then and then analyzing that data. And so that takes uh, armies of technology workers to to make all of that work. So all of those companies, big companies here in Pennsylvania, they all employ hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of technology workers. Anybody who goes to Philadelphia lately have seen the new Comcast Tower in yes. Philadelphia Can't under construction, it. right? Yeah. That'll, that'll um, house thousands of IT workers just in that one building, let alone the other giant Comcast Tower that also exists already in Philadelphia. So that's just one employer, one example, one city. And you think about that across the entire state of Pennsylvania, that's how you get to a quarter million open jobs. Well, so Pittsburgh it, is another uh, exactly hub right. for uh, exactly education right. and uh, IT jobs and well, uh, well the technology interesting, jobs. Right, the interesting thing, too, is, you know, across Pennsylvania, we have many, many, many uh, institutions of higher education, you know, more than 300. Yet, but, but as, as a collection of institutions, we're not even close to creating a uh, enough workers to fill those jobs. Are these good paying, family sustaining careers? Uh, just one example out of Harrisburg University. A young person that will graduate uh, tonight at our commencement um, came out of a terrible circumstance in inner city Philadelphia. Uh, we can all imagine what that looks like. Um, homeless uh, for some parts of his young life. Um, he uh, found his way to Harrisburg University Four years later, he graduates with a degree in cybersecurity. He had four job offers to pick from. He'll start. He'll start. He's 21 years old at ninety-two thousand dollars. That's a wow. that's a family wow. yeah, family I changing would say that's amount a, of money. I, I mean, I, I I was sitting here thinking about okay, how much is that going to pay? I didn't expect ninety-two thousand dollars. Nearly double the rate of a of a starting salary for a teacher. Today. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Now, we I see that all our lines are lit up, which is a good thing. And I ask our callers to be patient because we will get to you. But we have a question from a listener, an email, that is very, very important. Sarah from Chambersburg writes, can your guest speak to the gender discrepancy in STEM fields and its possible source in middle and high school? Uh, let me see if it girls are not often encouraged to find interest in math and science, and this affects the demographic, uh, demographic outcomes of the related fields. Uh, do your guests have commentary on this problem? This is well documented. I mean, in fact, Matthew, on your website, I saw that, uh, you know, a little less than half the workforce uh, are women, mm -hmm. but only 28% in the STEM fields are there women working, and we know just like the caller or the listener described, that young women, girls don't get involved. And it seems as though they're almost not encouraged. What has to happen? Why is it happening? So, you know, education reformers across the country will lament the achievement gap that we have between uh, students of color and, 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 and girls and young women. And, and, and um, the reality is it's, it's not an achievement gap. It's, it's an engagement gap. Uh, we have not done a good job at setting up these young women for opportunities to to get involved in STEM. And what you see is, again, this tends to be, to Eric's point, more after school or supplemental strategy. But a couple of organizations, there's Girls Code, there's Black Girls Code. There are organizations across the country that are really stepping up to say to young women, this is your opportunity to own a part of the 21st century. This is your opportunity to be prepared for, 
for college and career. Um, and, and that is absolutely critical if we are going to see a workforce that reflects um, the, the, the students today. Just one data point. You think about computer science, a, a huge emerging field. There's a national conversation around the role of computer science in, in state K-12 curriculum. And, and what we see is a, about one out of 10 women at the university level study computer science, uh, uh, or one out of 10 computer scientists are women, I should say. And, and guess what? That translates into the workforce. So you only have about 10 or 12% of computer scientists as, as women. But if you give that young woman in middle school or high school an opportunity to take, for instance, an AP computer science course, an advanced placement course, they're 10 times as likely to major in computer science once they matriculate to college. So we've got to create these opportunities at the middle school level, in some cases, frankly, at the elementary level. Again, speaking to that that spark in getting them interested and helping them pull through the curriculum. So, I mean, but I, I just want to you know, push back a little bit, and not push back, but engage you a little yeah. bit more. Engagement problem. I mean, is that we as a society, is that the educational community that just doesn't recognize that we need more women involved in these fields? I, I think it's both. I, I think that there hasn't been a, a, frankly, we don't tend to have conversations about about education policy using real data. We, we don't talk about the fact that, you know, only 10% of university ma uh, computer science majors are women. So if you start with a data point and you backward plan, you, you can see pretty clearly that we've got to create those opportunities for engagement. So I don't think this is intentional or nefarious. I just think it is uh, our tendency is to talk about the politics of things. Our tendency is to talk about um, 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 everything but the data. And when you let, uh, you know, the STEM guy talking about data, not a surprise, but when you let the data actually lead your strategy, you're likely to have better outcomes. Well, Eric, before you go, and I'll let you, you know, follow up on that, but what percentage of women do you have in school? We're very... Uh, non-traditional in many ways. And so we have 50% women and 50% minorities, undergrad in science well, and technology, which is, uh, you know, four or five times the national average as we've just heard. And I can talk about what we do specifically, but, but uh, you know, I have an observation, you know, in terms of the broader conversation about this is, you know, the reality is the that role models and the way families talk about, whether they mean to or not, just systematically talk about jobs and careers, all of the role models in technology today are men. So who, who do we think about? You know, you think about Bill Gates or you think about, you know, Steve Jobs, right? Those were the, the kinds of role models that are widely discussed and known across the world and in our families. And so what does that mean? Well, it's, you know, some guy that went off and, you know, independently in a garage or with his bunch of his buddies created a new technology. So that's, you know, we stereotype that that's what, that's the way this works. All right. So well, who are some of the women that should be role models? Though? Well, well it, you know, we don't have any good role models or we don't elevate any good role models, right? There, there are, you know, across the nation, there are many, many, many smart women that, uh, that are great role models. I mean, there's, you know, the same exists in the minority community. So, you know, there was a, a an ad campaign, um, and we were fortunate enough to have uh, an African-American astronaut come as a commencement speaker at, at right. Harrisburg University a few years ago, right? Well, to, to hold up on a national level and have as part of a major ad campaign, this was for one of the energy companies, you know, an African-American astronaut, okay, there's a role model, right? Someone who came from a community that looks like a lot of other communities where this is not the norm. This is not what we talk about. Um, 
that's what I think needs to happen more and more is to, and that's one of the reasons why we're successful at Harrisburg University is we have young women who are in forensics, young women who are in cybersecurity, young women who design computer games, who go out and talk to other girls in middle schools largely about, hey, you can do this, look at me, I'm, I'm doing amazing things. And they're role models and they look and act just like all the other young women. And I think that's one of the things from an engagement perspective that, that um, is a powerful technique and we need to do more of that. We'll be talking, uh, taking phone calls in just a, a moment, but Matthew, as I mentioned, you're gonna be the commencement speaker at Harrisburg University. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the National Math and Science Initiative before we do get to those phone calls. Um, you have a program that is designed to improve performance, everything we're talking about to make it better. Talk about the program. So so we've partnered with uh, over 800 high schools from coast to coast to, to introduce more advanced placement uh, STEM and English courses into American public schools. And, and the concept is relatively simple. You've got you've to be able to support teachers um, and, and provide them with both the content knowledge that they may be lacking and the instructional strategy to be able to introduce rigor and differentiate for their students. Um, you have to be able to create a data-driven culture within the school building. So, so it's really helping, um, helping uh, teachers and administrators use data as a flashlight, not a hammer, really critical. Uh, and then you've got to provide students with additional learning opportunities, extra time on task, et cetera. And so NIMSI's college readiness program um, is producing dramatic results across the country. When NIMSI partners with uh, a high school, we see them increase their AP performance. So the number of, of, of passing or qualifying scores on the AP exam in STEM subjects and English at, at a rate 10 times the national average. And, and that's, that is dramatic, and that is providing remarkable opportunity for students to have a, a college-like experience, lots of rigor at university. We know if you take an AP course, and, and, and especially if you achieve a passing score, you're more likely to go to college, you're more likely to persist after your freshman year, you're more likely to graduate. Um, and so that, that's, that's an example of the work that we're doing today. How do you do that? How do you do so so with, with regard to the teachers, you know, if you're an AP bio teacher, right, in, in Lancaster, let's use that as an example. You're an AP bio teacher, you're likely the only AP bio teacher in your school building. You don't have an opportunity to kick around the material, to, to, to talk through the challenges of reaching your students and, and, and helping them achieve at a higher level. So one thing we do is we provide a, a mentor, a master teacher from the state or from the region who has exceptional track record of results around getting students um, college ready through an advanced placement bio course, for instance. Um, we're going to provide lots of additional training. Um, the, the simple reality is most teacher professional development is not very high quality. And, and, and you juxtapose that with what NIMSI is doing, and, and we, are, we are working with teachers over the summer, during the school year, providing them again with that content knowledge and instructional strategy. That's a big part of it. Um, and then with regard to the students, our students receive on average the equivalent to two to three additional weeks of, of course time or content time because we see these kids show up to school on a Saturday. And they'll go to school over the course of three or four Saturdays in the spring, and they'll spend an extra six to seven hours in that day studying their, their AP 
STEM subjects so that they're really grasping the content, they're mastering the content, and they're prepared for success on the AP exam. So it, it's uh, it's not rocket science, um, but... You smile because I, Eric has a background as a rocket... Someone says a former rocket scientist. Eric, once a rocket scientist, you're always a rocket scientist. I appreciate scientist. that. Okay, good. Yeah. I've been called many things, but never a rocket scientist. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this. There obviously is a cost involved, and we know that one of the the major challenges, if not the most challenging uh, situation that uh, public schools are dealing with today is money. Mm -hmm. How can they afford your program? So I I think NIMSI has done an exceptional job building public-private partnerships. I'll give you a couple quick examples. So we've seen investment last year alone of over $140 million from uh, federal agencies, state agencies. Uh, foundations like the Michael and Susan Dell Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates, the Heinz endowments over in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, we see school districts increasingly stepping up to the plate to fund portions or the entire program themselves. So, uh, you know, I, I think there there are certainly opportunities and strategies to pull together the private sector. Um, ExxonMobil has made you know a, a sizable investment here in Pennsylvania to to be able to support this program. We have other corporations stepping up, but but I would challenge you to say, what's the opportunity cost of not doing it? I mean, right now, Pennsylvania ranks about 22nd with regard to AP achievement in the country, and and the state is being significantly outperformed by all of its neighbors. Maryland ranks second in the country, New York fifth, New Jersey sixth. And then again, you juxtapose those statistics with the current performance of, of high school students. Look, this isn't an achievement gap. Again, this is not that that kids in Pennsylvania aren't capable of exceptionally strong performance in the STEM fields. It's that we are not setting the teachers and the students up with the right resources to be successful. And and that's an opportunity cost that that folks in Pennsylvania are going to really have to think about. Quickly, do you have local schools? Um, we do not have any local schools here. We are uh, we started our work in the Pittsburgh area, so we're in nine Pittsburgh high schools today. Um, we're going to double that number in the next school year, and we'll triple it uh, by 17-18. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamont. Our guest today is Dr. Eric Darr, president of Harrisburg University of Science and Technology, and Matthew Randazzo, CEO with the National Math and Science Initiative, will be the commencement speaker at Harrisburg University this weekend. If you have a question or a comment, all our lines are lit up right now, and I'm going to get to those phones right now. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Lars and Carlisle. Laura, thank you for being patient. Sure. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, there's so many factors that contribute to the inhibition for the subjects we're talking about. Obviously, the teachers being unequipped and underqualified, is it was alarming to me and, yeah, very distressing. Um, but I want to know how much is standardized testing really putting these teachers' hands tied behind their backs? I think it's really important that we make subjects applicable to life Um, An example that I'll give you that I would strongly encourage, like at the elementary level, would be teaching gardening in school. That covers so many different subjects in that field. It might spark somebody to be interested in agriculture, irrigation, math, science, all of that. You're covering so many things beyond nutrition and physical education. And especially at the elementary level, they think those sorts of things are magical. So it kind of instills that interest early on 
but how much does standardized testing and having to meet such standards make it so that we're not able to, to go beyond your average you know, narrow track. All right, Laura, thank you very much for your call. Touched on this earlier, but uh, directly to her question. So, look, I'm, I'm no accountability hawk. That, that said, I do believe that, there, that standardized testing plays an important role. I think that the, the challenge has become, um, it's become standardized testing, that is, is now the ends. And, and instead, we ought to be using standardized testing, frankly, as leading indicators for um, really how prepared students are for, for college and career. And to Eric's point earlier, you know, how are we setting kids up for success in this 21st century knowledge economy? Um, so I think certainly standardized testing has hampered some of that. It's hampered some of the creativity. Um, but, but I think... Um, we ought to be cautious. I think the pendulum swung pretty far toward testing, and you see some backlash across the country where we're dramatically rolling back testing and standards. And 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 again, public education is one of those places where we don't very do a very good job moderating and landing in the right place. So, um, yeah, anyhow, it seems pretty, to be neither or. Yeah, it really does. It, 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 unfortunately, yeah. that's you know, how it's proposed. I, I would propose. You know, I loved your your comment about. Uh, you know, standardized tests as a flashlight, not as a not as a hammer. So, but but I'll, uh, you know, just an alternative way of thinking about it. So again, I, I I would be one that would say accountability is critically important. But I I actually am a uh, you know staunch critic of standardized testing uh, as the way it's currently implemented, as as greatly tying the hands of our teachers to the to the callers' uh, point. And an alternative is, for example, say you go with the gardening uh, idea. Um, uh, which is a hands-on uh, learning opportunity. Um, in higher ed, there are uh, techniques around what's called creating learning objectives. So you have uh, hands-on opportunities, experiential uh, work, if you will, uh, and you assign learning objectives to those hands-on work. While you could create learning objectives at the elementary level around gardening that have a lot of things to do with science and and even even economics and uh, environmental science and and you know let your creation and your imagination go you know if if you're interested in accountability then um, you know have some standardization of what learning objectives need need to be covered but don't dictate how those learning objectives should be covered and they could be covered in things like you know a gardening exercise or many other experiential hands-on opportunities and then assess around those learning objectives rather around very tightly controlled uh, test type standardized uh, approach. Just another way of thinking about how to achieve accountability without the hammer of standardized testing. Let's go to Galen in Lancaster and I understand, Galen, that you're a science teacher. That's correct. Thank oh, you. Okay, um, so I, I left a bit of a rant on your uh, webpage for the program. Oh, okay. But I just have to say, and I, I apologize, I'm off sick. That's why I'm able to. Oh, okay. To yeah, I was wondering why you weren't in school. All right. Um, the, we, we, I think the standardized tests really are at the base of the problem that's going on. Um, because in Pennsylvania, we've got the Keystone test. So in science, we have to test for biology. So we've got to get kids through biology. Uh, so many of them don't do well that they've got to take the test a second time, so they're actually in the class a second time uh, just so they can pass that keystone test. Uh, the problem I see it is that we are trying to teach things that are developmentally inappropriate. They need to understand chemistry before they get biology. Before chemistry, they need to understand physics. 
and before physics, they need to understand algebra. So it is all given to them. You know, they're, they're supposed to get all this stuff in ninth grade because they've got to pass it before they graduate. So they're getting all this stuff at the wrong time. Um, and I'd like to hear what your, your okay. guest has to Thank say. Thank you very that. much for your call. I, I, I would agree. Uh, in many curriculums, it's uh, it, it, things are taken out of order. Um, you know, don't disagree with the order of things that was just uh, you know mentioned. I would say the other you know ordering of um, skills and laddering of skills is critically important. But I would say the integration of those skills. And so, again, taken as um, independent courses or independent classes where algebra is completely disconnected from physics or algebra is completely disconnected from economics or other things where, um, you know, uh, algebra is critically important um, makes it a very dry, I said this before, boring subject, right? Um, And so, you know, how to better integrate uh, algebra with physics, with chemistry, with biology, so that it's not seen as just these independent uh, disciplines, but we all know the world around us is an interdisciplinary world, and the skills that employers want are interdisciplinary skills. And so, can, so, can I interrupt for just a second, Eric? Because we only have a few minutes left, and I want to try to get yep, as yep, many yep. calls as we can. But I do want to follow up on when he was listing algebra, calculus, uh, all those things, geometry. I don't think he mentioned geometry, no. but you know, uh, someone hearing that is saying those things are hard. I noticed Matthew on your website that I think is it 38 uh, percent of those who start in uh, college uh, STEM related majors don't graduate with those those bachelor degrees, right. and probably the reason they don't is because they get to those uh, majors and say, you know what, this is difficult. I could probably find a major where I don't have to work as hard, I don't have to think as hard. I hate to put that out there because it's such a blanket statement, but the things you just listed and our car are listed, people in our society look at those things and say, you know what, those things I have to think about. Yeah, I mean, look, I think, uh, again, this tracks back. Uh, American public school teachers are, are doing amazing things on behalf of kids every single day. I, I want that point um, um, underscored. We recognize the challenging environments in which they work, the funding environments in which they work, the differentiation that they're expected to do. Um, that said, we know that 63% of all high school graduates aren't ready for college-level science. 63%. So when, when a student declares a college major in the sciences and, and they are going in woefully underprepared, um, we're not doing a very good job setting them up for success. And so, um, you know, we, we talk about STEM education being at, a, 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 at the pre-K level now, at the elementary level, to really start to build those foundational skills. To the caller's point, you have to really scaffold that support really strategically and build those very early skills around computational thinking, et cetera, as early as elementary school. All right, let's take some more phone calls. Uh, Tim is in Carlisle. Tim, you're on the air. Thank you very much. I'll keep this brief. Okay. Um, just a quick comment. Um, there seems to be a lot of public pushback to science and math, either careers or education, um, either due to, what, let's say, like religious things as far as like creationism or, you know, like major like potential failures in science, you know, like maybe like thalidomide babies in the 60s or something like that. Basically, science has a PR problem. How do you get above that PR problem? How do you start engaging the public more effectively when it comes to science 
basically saying that science is a good thing. We need this in our lives beyond phones, beyond technology, beyond screens, stuff like that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Carl. Does, does science have a PR problem? A great example. Uh, you know, back to one, our first caller, Bill, right? He went to um, high school in a time, he said, I think he said 1962 he graduated. Um, that was the best PR example of science and technology the world has ever seen, right? John F. Kennedy challenged the go. nation to put a man on the moon before the end of the turn of that century. He galvanized the nation. He excited the imagination of young people. Um, it was partially fueled by us against them uh, in terms of a race to, to the space, a race to the moon. But it was really a, 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 an imaginative, almost... Uh, unbelievable thing that he called for and that the nation rallied around. And so, yes, I, I agree that, you know, public relations and, and an advertising, uh, if you will, or marketing, a better marketing campaign for the importance of science and technology is desperately needed. Um, and any number of problems, the safety of the food supply, the need for the food supply, uh, energy dependence, there are any number of global problems, global needs that could be, uh, you know, implemented in a in a well-done marketing campaign. So we need to find a good marketing and firm to help us. they're always referred to as an Apollo project. Uh, had Vice President Biden a few yeah. weeks ago call for an Apollo project on cancer, fighting cancer. Let's take another call from Catherine in Enola. Catherine, you're on the air. Hello. Um, I have, I'm an English, well, I'm going to be graduating on May 7th to be an English teacher, but I do have a question. In the classes that I have observed and in the classes that I have participated in, there seems to be this understanding of you have to do it this way. Uh, a math teacher saying, here is a problem, you have to solve it using this formula, and at the end it has to look exactly like this. An English teacher saying, you know, each paragraph has to have five sentences on the dot. I feel like putting those strictures in place causes people to get frustrated because a student might go, well, I prefer to use the divisional bracket rather than the divisional symbol. It makes more sense to me. It's easier for me. Um, the way I learned math is very different from the way that the kids that I am now tutoring learned math. And so when I help them, some of them like the way I teach them, try to apply it in the class, and the teacher turns around and goes, no, that's wrong. And then the student gets frustrated and disenchanted with the subject. I think there's this huge frustration. And granted, to have a teacher stratify their lessons so that they can encompass different types of solving of the problem or different types of answering of the open-ended question, I know that's difficult. However, in order to not have these kids pull back from the subject, in order to have these kids not think, well, I can't do that because I don't know how they want me to do that, I think some sort of understanding needs to be in place in which, hey, if you attempted the problem, You've got the solution, and I can see how you reach the solution. Regardless of how you set the problem up, you got it right. Hey, Catherine, thank you very much for your call. Uh, Catherine, congratulations on your upcoming graduation. And I think you, you just aptly described the challenges of this 19th century learning model. Uh, plain and simple, we're in the 21st century. We need to evolve our work. Um, and, and I do think a lot of this challenge, frankly, rests in many traditional teacher development programs where um, we teach teachers to engage with classrooms in a very specific way, and, and that way is based on a nearly 200-year-old model. So. Um, I wish you luck as you as you transition into a, a new role as an English teacher, and challenge you to to remember this call. So 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 you treat your students with that uh, that level of exploration and excitement that 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 uh, you just expressed and today. That, and goes back to what Eric was talking about with creativity too. Let's go to Liz in Lancaster. Liz, you're on the air. Hello, Liz. 
Okay, I guess Liz isn't there. Let's go to Tom in Lancaster. Tom, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. Morning. My observation has been through the years, and particularly in having checked with some of the universities that provide elementary ed uh, instruction, that one of the problems is we don't have an excitement for math and science. And one of the reasons we don't have the excitement is elementary ed teachers are only required to take one three-credit course. So for many of them, they're attempting to teach science in the elementary grades, but the students feel that they're afraid of the topic, and maybe then, as a result, they're not interested in the topic when they're in middle school. The other observation is through the years, and particularly with my involvement with the Museum of Scientific Discovery and the Whitaker Center, is there's so much focus on the technology that kids have very short attention spans, and what we know is that math and science require some repetition, and they don't seem to have the patience for it. Hey, Tom, thank, thank you very much for your call, gentlemen. Um, so, so agreed regarding the caller's uh, observations on elementary uh, math and science. We've got to do a much better job getting STEM majors into elementary classrooms. We have to better support non-STEM majors with uh, w with math and science instruction so that they can really get students excited and engaged. I think that's perhaps one of the biggest opportunities that we have in developing a broader STEM literate society is really looking at the level of support we're providing at the elementary level. His other point, and I asked for a quick answer because we are running short on time. His other point about uh, students not having the attention span. Is that an issue? I think it's, again, an engagement issue. I, I think if you if you meet students where they are and you're able to differentiate to their learning style, they, they have remarkable stick-to-itiveness. All right, now we have Liz in Lancaster. Liz, you're on the air. Hi, thank you. Sorry about that. That's all right. Um, this, this is a great topic, and I'm really glad I got it at this point because I work for a nonprofit organization right here in South Central Pennsylvania, Central Pennsylvania, Junior Achievement, and we have developed the STEM Summit that we institute in local high schools that specifically is a one-day event where ninth or 10th graders, where they go through a full day of just doing STEM experiments, activities, competitions, and they hear from individuals who are in currently very diverse STEM fields to get them re-engaged in STEM because one of the challenges teachers face, as you had noted, is getting students excited about this again. When they're in elementary school, science and math and technology and engineering is cool, but then as they get older, it kind of loses its original luster and excitement. And with the STEM Summit, we're able to get the students re-engaged, see the possibilities it has for them for their futures, and it's a great partnership with the schools because they can then guide these students into the courses that they need to take to be able to be successful. And with your speaker there talking about helping the different schools be able to teach the AP courses, I think it's a great partnership between nonprofits to be able to really enhance STEM in the schools and support them as they move forward with this really highly skilled future workforce. Liz, thank you very much. I'm glad that we got you on the air. And I also had uh, someone else wanted to mention that there are some libraries that have STEM programs. Mentioned the Adamstown Area Library in Lancaster County in particular. Uh, gentlemen, we are out of time. A lot to talk about. I think we covered a lot of material, but our program here today, I was, I was happy to hear so many teachers, that we heard from so many teachers today, but at least three teachers who called in. But uh, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Maybe even uh, some of our listeners today here 
during the program, they'll think about this a little bit more and uh, engage. That's, there's a word I'm going to take from the from the program. But Matthew Rendazzo will be speaking uh, at the uh, Harrisburg University commencement. He's CEO of the National Math and Science Initiative. Dr. Eric Dar is president of Harrisburg University of Science and Technology. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank Scott, you. Thank you. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by the Pinnacle Health Cardiovascular Institute's team of cardiologists, surgeons, nurses, physicians assistants, and rehabilitation specialists, delivering a broad range of traditional and highly specialized procedures.